Hello everyone, this is Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and other platforms. And if you can keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page, also under Historian Splaining, and contribute whatever you can. And you'll have access to all of my patron-only materials as well. So it's been about a month since my last installment about the 1619 Project. And in the intervening time, I have also joined another new platform that was just recently launched called Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, which is specifically designed for educational podcasts. I will put the link in the description to their website, and they have an app that you can download onto a smartphone. And if you access this podcast through Lyceum, then you should be able to get all of my posts, including those that are patron-only, all in one continuous stream, which is something that some of my patrons have asked about before. So they wouldn't have to shuttle back and forth between SoundCloud or other programs and Patreon. So if you're a patron, then my understanding is that once I produce more patron-only material, I will have a code that I can give to my patrons so that you can have everything in one continuing feed. So check that out, see if that would work well for you. But at this point, I want to discuss a certain historical topic that has been in the air, you could say, and on a lot of people's minds because of how it so obviously relates to our own current situation. I don't want to get too much into the supposed parallels or links between our own time and this other event in the past, except I will start out with a recent story that maybe some of you might have seen noted in the news. So just a matter of days ago, on April 17th, 2020, the oldest living military veteran in Nassau County, New York, died as a result of COVID-19. His name was Philip Frank, and he was 100 years old. He was interred with full military honors because of his service in World War II. After being born and raised in Manhattan as the son of a baker, he enlisted in the U.S. military and served in the Pacific Theater and survived several close calls, including hitting a landmine that threw him 15 feet into the air. But he survived and returned, married, resettled first in Queens and then in Great Neck, Long Island. And when he died, his family was not able to attend the burial service, but his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren recorded messages of love and remembrance. And by all accounts, he had lived a very full and fulfilling life. However, during his lifetime at significant life events such as birthdays or bar mitzvahs, he reportedly would make reference to an absence that he felt 
all through the course of his long life. Someone who could have been there, but was not. And that person was his twin brother named Samuel, who was born along with him on December 15, 1919, in New York City, but whom Philip never got to meet or properly got to know because his twin brother Samuel died in infancy just a few weeks after their birth, one of the last casualties of Spanish flu. So we see in this story of Philip and Samuel an incidence of two twins as closely related to one another as any two people can be, who were both felled by two different pandemic diseases 100 years apart. This story of these two twins can seem surreal, almost too perfect, like the plotline of an overwrought Gothic novel. And in this way, it might be a bit unusual, an extreme case. But it's also, I would say, emblematic of the impact and the legacy of the Spanish flu pandemic. Most of us today are aware that the Spanish flu happened, but it hasn't been spoken of very much. It hasn't been written about very much. There are hardly any memorials, even plaques, commemorating the Spanish flu. It hardly makes its way into any grade school curriculums. And as I'll talk about later, there are no great novels or films associated with the Spanish flu. And yet, it has cast this lasting shadow all the way down to today. The sense of loss and of disaster of the Spanish flu is not dealt with hardly ever as a public matter. Rather, it is almost always private and personal. It's a matter of intimate losses of friends and loved ones that marked particular people's lives in ways that they tend very often to keep to themselves and have rarely over all these years shared, even to the degree that Philip Frank did when he made reference to his unresolved grief over the brother that he never knew. And part of how I knew that this story was emblematic in this way is that when I mentioned to some people that I would do a podcast about the Spanish flu, one of my own patrons remarked that she found it intriguing because she knew little about it, but she knew that her own grandfather in Italy had died of the Spanish flu. And that too, I think, exemplifies how so many people have been touched by this loss and never really been able to take stock of it or put it in perspective or to put these stories of loss or absence of people we never knew into some kind of bigger collective context. And this sort of lack of accounting was actually true at the time even. Hardly anyone took stock of what was happening when so many millions of people fell ill and died in those few short months from 1918 to 1920. 
And one basic reason why they didn't do so is because they couldn't. There simply wasn't enough information. There was not effective media for quickly collecting and sorting through the impact that that disease outbreak was having on cities and towns and villages and families all around the globe. And really, we can only do that to some degree decades later when we have the means to collect all of that information and piece it together into a big picture. It's like lifting up in a hot air balloon and being able to survey over a massive landscape that just wasn't accessible when you were on the ground. So with the benefit of all these years of hindsight, what can we say about the Spanish flu? Well, I'm going to talk a bit first just about the scale of the disaster and what that picture looks like. Then I'll talk about how it unfolded, the events, the phases of this more or less two-year-long catastrophe. And then I'll talk about the impacts, the reverberating after-effects that came in the years after, even when people, for the most part, moved on with their lives and hardly spoke about the Spanish flu. I'll talk about the mysteries, the unresolved questions about this disease outbreak that are still strange and puzzling and only slowly being pieced together. And then I'll talk about the memory, how it has been recalled and perceived through the ages, and the strange and confusing reasons why, as another patron said, this tremendous catastrophe and tragedy seems to have been thrown down the memory hole over this past century until we find ourselves in another pandemic today that in some ways is similar. So what was the scale, and why should we look at this as such a major impactful event? Well, it seems that once the flu broke out and circled the globe several times over between the spring of 1918 and the early weeks of 1920, it infected probably around one-third of the entire human species, or in other words, somewhere around maybe 600 million people. And a significant percentage of those people infected with the Spanish flu died. The current estimates run somewhere between around 50 to 70 million people killed, or maybe a bit more. In other words, we can conclude that most likely the Spanish flu pandemic killed more people than the combat of the First and Second World Wars combined. In the United States specifically, which may be the country where the flu pandemic began, although that is still not entirely clear, the current estimates are that roughly around 675,000 people were killed. So in other words, the U.S. lost about one out of every 200 people. And in the globe at large, it was a larger proportion. Somewhere around one out of 40 individuals died. 
the places hit hardest were not in Europe or the United States, which were hit quite hard and did lose millions of people. But it seems that the deadliness of the disease was even greater in places where people had limited resources, uh, limited information, limited government support. In terms of sheer numbers, India lost the largest number of people, possibly because there was already widespread malaria at the time, and malaria interacted in a particularly deadly fashion with the Spanish flu. Also, millions were lost in Persia, probably for similar reasons. So if we're looking at gross numbers, just India alone probably suffered more deaths from this pandemic than the total number of casualties from the First World War of all countries. However, in terms of percentage, India and Persia were not the hardest hit, but rather smaller countries that had isolated populations that were completely unprepared for the invasion of a deadly influenza virus. And that includes Western Samoa probably saw the highest proportion of loss of life anywhere in the world, losing somewhere around 22% of its population. If we look around at the different countries that were hit, of Europe, Russia, Africa, the U.S., Latin America, different subgroups and populations within those countries suffered at different rates. In some cases, we can point to clear reasons why some people lost more lives than others. In some cases, it's a mystery and we can only guess. By and large, the poor and immigrants were hit harder than natives. This is not surprising, especially the urban poor and immigrants tend to live in tight-packed, close quarters where pathogens can pass very quickly. There had already been outbreaks like tuberculosis and cholera in the poor, dense ghettos of large cities like London and New York. However, in some cities, the opposite seemed to be true in that wealthy neighborhoods, such as in Paris, suffered higher rates of illness and death. And the reason for this seems to be that in some places, such as in Paris, wealthy neighborhoods had large concentrations of servants, and domestic servants also often lived crowded into small rooms, unsanitary conditions, and these provided easy breeding grounds for disease. For similar reasons, sailors and soldiers also, on ships, military bases, fortresses, military hospitals, and in the trenches, suffered particularly intensely, more so than civilians. On the other hand, there seemed to be almost random freak discrepancies. Some cities were largely spared and suffered comparatively less, such as Chicago in the United States. Others suffered far more and had greater losses, such as Philadelphia and most particularly San Francisco. When we look within the U.S. population, it seems that African Americans, despite being by and large poorer than the white population, African Americans suffered somewhat less than other residents of the United States. 
And there are other small minority groups, ethnic and religious minorities in pockets around the world that for some reason or other seem to have contracted the Spanish flu and died from it less frequently. It's not clear why that could be, but one possibility is that those poor subgroups had already suffered flu epidemics in recent years before 1918 that happened to confer them with a certain degree of resistance and immunity, making them comparatively less vulnerable when the Spanish flu arrived. So the flu was overwhelmingly an experience that struck people and that caused suffering in private tight quarters, in homes, in flats, sometimes in hospitals, in infirmaries. And the vast majority of the people who suffered or died from the disease were ordinary, obscure individuals whom most of us have never heard of, or even if they were members of our families, they're people who died, such as my patron's grandfather, whom we never met and probably don't know very much about. But to give a little sense of how pervasive and how dramatic the outbreak was and how many lives it touched, we can consider some of the more famous people who did get this flu, survived and recovered. So that would include, just just to name a few, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, Clementine Churchill, President Woodrow Wilson, Mohandas Gandhi, the Queen of Denmark, the King of Spain, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia, the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George, most likely Kaiser Wilhelm and Chancellor Prince Maximilian of Germany, General John J. Pershing, and in terms of artists and intellectuals, Franz Kafka, Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, Georgia O'Keeffe, Edvard Munch, John Dos Passos, the composer Bella Bartok, the movie maker Walt Disney, the movie stars Lillian Gish, Mary Pickford, and Greta Garbo, and the aviator Amelia Earhart. As for noted people who died, who did not survive this outbreak, those included the president-elect of Brazil, the prime minister of South Africa, the philosopher Max Weber, the French poet Guillaume Apollinaire, very possibly the modernist painter Gustave Klimt, and also his compatriot in the modern art movement, Egon Schiele, whose last painting, The Family, depicted himself in a group nude portrait with his wife and their infant child. And it happens that that infant child that we see in Egon Schiele's painting was never actually born because the Spanish flu struck and killed his pregnant wife. And he painted this portrait as a depiction of the family that he might have had in the final days of his life before he then himself also died of Spanish flu. And in this way, this painting can represent an imagining of these lives, these families that could have happened but did not, and the possibilities that were never realized. It's impossible to say why certain individuals like, say, Apollinaire or Max Weber 
ended up dying of this disease, while those others I mentioned, like David Lloyd George or Franklin Roosevelt or Bella Bartok, survived. There's a horrible randomness to it. It seems as if the lives of important, influential, creative, visionary people were simply determined by a dice roll. And it can be truly mind-boggling, as other authors that I'll mention have noted, to contemplate what would have happened in the world, how would history have unfolded if, say, for instance, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who at the time was the Secretary of the Navy, had died of the Spanish flu rather than surviving. And so many other accomplished, promising, ambitious young men of his own generation did die in those months. How might the Depression, World War II, have looked if these rolls of the dice had turned out slightly differently? And indeed, if we look through the rolls and rolls of millions of names of people who perished, how do we know there wasn't someone else in that list who would have been a figure like Franklin D. Roosevelt, who would have affected the entire path of world history for the next century? Along the same lines, another survivor of the Spanish flu was the Hungarian nuclear physicist named Leo Zillard, who went on to conceive of the idea of a nuclear chain reaction, thus making the atomic bombs and the nuclear age possible. What if he had not survived? Again, what of the next hundred years would have unfolded completely differently? So in this way, the Spanish flu throws the precariousness and the unpredictability of all of history into relief. So what I'm going to try to do next, as I said before, is not to simply look for lessons for today, because it can be very easy and tempting to just try to wrap up a story like the Spanish flu with a neat bow on top of here's what we should draw from it, or bits of wisdom to pluck from it like a fortune cookie. Uh, So I'm going to avoid that except for maybe a few moments where it's too obvious to avoid. And I'm going to try instead to put the present day onto the back burner for a little while and try to get perspective on what actually happened and how in those disastrous and difficult years between 1918 and 1920. How did this pandemic unfold? What were the basic events? Well, this pandemic really, when you look at it more closely, it was actually three outbreaks, each of which could be counted as a kind of dramatic pandemic unto itself. And these three waves broke out first in the spring months of 1918, Then there was a recession, a bit of a calm period in the summer, and then a second, even greater wave in the autumn, basically from late August through November 1918. And then finally, a longer and slower third wave, which spiked in January 1919 and then slowly petered out with a sort of long tail 
through 1919 and even into the early months of 1920, after which it seems that this Spanish flu virus finally died out and stopped infecting human beings. So how did the first wave happen if we start with that first spring outbreak? Well, it seems that the first known recorded dramatic flu epidemic in 1918 that historians generally agree was part of this pandemic that would break out was recorded at a military base called Camp Funston in Kansas in the United States. On March 4, 1918, a young American cook named Albert Gitchell reported himself to the infirmary of Camp Funston complaining of basically flu-like symptoms, fever, coughing and sneezing, and so on. And this in itself did not seem like a terribly unusual or alarming event. But the nurses at the infirmary noted that by the end of that day, the infirmary was already filled to full capacity with soldiers sick with severe flu. It's possible that maybe Albert Gitchell, the cook, inadvertently spread the virus with which he was infected to the soldiers through food, but we can't know. It's also possible that he simply happened to be the first affected person to show symptoms or to go to the infirmary. This outbreak at Camp Funston is generally considered to be the earliest known event of the pandemic because very quickly thereafter, Within a matter of days, similar large flu outbreaks were being recorded in various sites around the U.S., especially eastward across the American South and onto the Atlantic coast. So very likely the virus had already infected soldiers and sailors who were then shipping out from these bases in the American interior to the East Coast to be dispatched across the Atlantic to the war front in Europe. And at this stage, it seemed that this flu that was breaking out among soldiers and sailors and then gradually among civilians was basically like an ordinary severe flu, you know, not unlike the form of influenza that was already familiar in much of America that people sometimes called knock-me-down flu which is basically just a a flu that affects you very quickly, makes you weak and feverish, and basically puts you into bed for a matter of a few days before you then begin to recover, sometimes quite quickly. So in this way, it didn't seem all that out of the ordinary, except some doctors and nurses did note that some of these flu cases were quite severe, leading to chest discomfort, difficulty breathing, and lung fluid that could develop into pneumonia. And in some places, there was an unusually, even surprisingly high rate of pneumonia, leading in some cases to death. And in any influenza outbreak, it's normal for there to be some deaths. But in these cases, it was noticeable that there were a bit more deaths than doctors were accustomed to seeing previously. There also were some other peculiar symptoms of 
this influenza outbreak that some patients themselves began to note and talk about where we can find any reference to it. Those who suffered in this flu outbreak sometimes had their senses impaired. They could report a loss of the sense of taste and smell, and even a loss of color perception. Now, it happens that sometimes influenza, especially in bad cases, it can irritate the optic nerve and so affect or diminish the sufferer's sense of sight. And it seems that this happened pretty frequently, even in this early outbreak of Spanish flu, that patients would say that their vision was sort of washed out and everything looked gray and ashen to them. And they especially lost rich blue and green and yellow colors and reported seeing the world as kind of flattened, ashy, with just touches of red. Another unusual pattern that some people began to notice here and there during these early flu outbreaks was in whom it affected. In some ways, this influenza outbreak, again, was like endless number of previous influenza pandemics that had been seen before all the way back to ancient times, in that it was very harmful and dangerous for the very young, for young children, those who maybe had never been exposed to influenza before. And it was dangerous and harmful for the very old. But in this case, it also seemed to particularly often attack and affect a middle age group, those basically in their 20s and early 30s, who were by all accounts, healthy in the prime of life, and who were absolutely not usually in the biggest risk group for influenza. And this is a pattern that would persist and come to the fore even more dramatically later, that it's that this new influenza epidemic seemed to attack people in young adulthood even more frequently than it did young children or the elderly. So fairly quickly, by about the middle of April 1918, it seems that this influenza virus crossed the ocean into Europe. It rapidly spread through the war front, affecting soldiers in fortresses, in trenches, encampments, spilling over little by little into the civilian populations around the war front, and then rapidly crisscrossing back and forth in bursts and waves all over Europe, including through Germany and the Eastern Front and to Russia. And sometimes it seems it would travel outward by land from war zones, but also more often than that, it would make its way by ship and land in ports and then spread from those port cities through the land masses. It happens that this large outbreak of influenza, which again particularly attacked people in their 20s and 30s, which was the age group of military officers, it hit the war zone right at a crucial turning point. So in the winter of 1918, the new Bolshevik revolutionary government in Russia laid down their arms and 
negotiated a surrender to Germany. Uh, It was not an unconditional surrender, but rather they negotiated the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, in which Russia agreed to hand over immense swaths of territory in Eastern Europe in return for peace. And now that Germany was no longer obligated to fight on its eastern front, they quickly turned their military units around and rushed them over to the western front to try to throw their full force into the effort against France and Britain. And in the spring of 1918, they actually made headway and were able to advance into French territory much more rapidly than before. And it seemed that a German victory might even be imminent. They pressed further into France, came within less than 75 miles of the capital at Paris, and even were able to set up large uh, howitzer guns, nicknamed Big Bertha, and use them to launch missiles all the way into Paris. So it was becoming really a dire situation for the Allies on the Western Front. But the other factor was that the United States had entered into the war. And now, as the winter of 1918 ended, the U.S. was able, for the first time, to begin launching hundreds of thousands of troops across the sea to bolster the French and British lines against this German advance. And they were really in a race against time. Would the Americans be able to reinforce the Allied war effort quickly enough before France succumbed to this new German offensive? The fate of Europe and of much of the world hung in the balance in this race. The French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau was quoted telling an American newspaper that a terrible blow was imminent. And he said, quote, tell your Americans to come quickly. And so it might be sort of darkly ironic or even comic that in the middle of this dramatic moment, both sides basically halted. (laughs) Movement stopped. The war returned to stasis. Why? Well, obviously, because practically the entire officer corps on both sides of the war front was now sick with severe influenza, as well as a large portion of the men on the front. So the war, despite all of these dramatic developments and shifts, the war basically returned to a stationary stalemate. And hence, it's a very strange coincidence that these armies and camps that had been struggling to find a way to break out of stasis and move the theater of war happened to also be the perfect disease breeding grounds for this specific pathogen that passed, that could pass by air from coughing and sneezing from one man to another and was especially virulent for men in their 20s and 30s. Now, it happens, you may know, that war is almost always a great breeding ground for human diseases. Human beings are spread all around the globe, 
And when people live in small groups, small villages or migratory bands, it's very hard for virulent diseases to break out because the pockets of people who are infected with them will either die if the disease is lethal enough, or they will scatter. People will move away from others who are ill. And hence, pathogens that are very harmful to humans will tend to die out quickly before they infect many people. And in order for very virulent harmful diseases like, say, smallpox to break out, you need large crowds, large concentrations of people among whom the virus can pass over and over before it dies out. And hence, many times in the past, such as during the American Revolution, when people who had previously lived in scattered agrarian communities came together in large crowds like armies and fortresses, they were sitting ducks for the outbreaks of camp diseases like smallpox. And indeed, the American Revolution triggered huge epidemics of smallpox that probably killed more people than the combat of that war. So this was not an entirely new thing. But it happens that by 1918, smallpox had been more or less eradicated, certainly from Europe. People had developed vaccination and were now immunized against smallpox. And sanitation methods were keeping other diseases like cholera and typhus largely at bay. So in many ways, you could say Western civilization had had found the techniques and had adapted to stop camp diseases. And yet nonetheless, <laughs> the perfect camp disease somehow managed to emerge and hit them at just the right moment, such that this largest war that had ever happened in Europe managed to give way to an even larger pandemic. Now, we can make all of these observations in retrospect, but nonetheless, this spring wave basically petered out after the weather shifted and after enough people had already been infected, recovered, and gained resistance to it. And the cases of flu dropped off very dramatically in June and July. This wave of pandemic went largely unnoticed. The information about the outbreak, which was so debilitating to the armies and was so devastating to many towns and cities as well, it was not shared. Most nations were keeping a tight clamp on the press in their own jurisdictions, which they could do at this time. There was not much uh, radio, there was no television, there was of course no internet. So it was possible for governments to basically censor what was published and, and shared across long distances. And they, for the most part, prevented the press from even reporting the fact that thousands upon thousands of people were falling ill and overcrowding the hospitals and infirmaries. People were dying by the thousands in their homes and on their farms. This information was not shared, and so when people saw the flu outbreak in their own town or city or their own fortress or naval base, they just assumed it was a local event, that it was a flare-up of bad influenza, that most of 
them were going to survive and move on. And they didn't know that this disease was sweeping the entire country and was starting to spread around the entire world. And even when people did know that this flu was breaking out and affecting thousands of people in many far-flung places, they didn't necessarily take it as all that significant. They were distracted by the events of the war in which the fate of their civilization seemed to hang in the balance. And indeed, the, the fact that soldiers were getting the flu could seem quite trivial if you were worried about whether the Germans were about to march on your city, for instance. Even those institutions that had the duty of collecting this information and reporting it, they didn't necessarily report the data in a way that revealed the fact that a large pandemic was happening. In many countries, influenza was simply considered too minor a disease to even bother recording in official statistics. And so clinics, hospitals, prisons would tend to only report when people had pneumonia. And if they died with lung fluid and lung inflammation, their death would be reported as a result of pneumonia. So many people who were concerned about the health and safety of the public or of the, the armies would simply note there seems to be a strange increase in cases of pneumonia and pneumonia deaths this spring, and they wouldn't put it into this bigger picture of the massive outbreak of influenza. So it was only a small number of people, such as prison wardens, doctors, government health officials, who even were able to piece together the fact that a massive flu pandemic was even happening. And there are odd cases, such as, for instance, a set of U.S. Public Health Service scientists who were sent to do a study on cases of pellagra in South Carolina, who noticed that their entire study was suddenly thrown into chaos because all of their subjects were getting influenza. <laughs> and managed to report back to the U.S. government, maybe something strange is happening here with severe flu. And as I said, this pandemic seems to have receded anyway by midsummer 1918. And even those who noted that a widespread disaster had happened may have simply brushed it off and never really thought about it again if there hadn't then been a dramatic second wave. So what was this second wave? We do not know, much as with the first wave, we do not know exactly when and where and how the second wave began. But we do know that another outbreak, in many ways more severe, of the flu broke out at almost the same moment in mid-August in three different cities around the Atlantic. At Brest, France, Boston, Massachusetts, and Freetown, Sierra Leone. How did it get to these three places all at once? Did some sort of strange new mutation happen independently in three different port cities? It seems like an impossible coincidence, and more likely it seems some sort of mutation happened and then was very rapidly passed around on ships. And several different ships 
carried this virus and then landed it and passed it on to populations on land in these three different towns. And for some reason, it seems when it got on shore, it affected people in a more severe way than it did the sailors at sea. Again, we can't say why. But a really clear example of this is in Freetown, Sierra Leone, which was an important port where British ships would often resupply and refuel as they traveled around the Atlantic or down around South Africa to go to India. And we know that on August 15th, 1918, a British ship docked to refuel at Freetown. And some people on this ship were ill with the flu, similar with a, similar sorts of cases to what had happened in the spring. But then very soon, within a matter of a few days, large numbers of people who worked at the dockyard that had refueled this ship were severely ill. Within nine days, a number of people had died, and 12 days later, 500 of the 600 dock workers at Freetown failed to show up to work because they were severely ill. Within a few months, it seems this new virulent Spanish flu had spread and infected two-thirds of all the population of Sierra Leone, and about 3% of the population of the country had died. So this was a remarkably fast-moving and devastating new form of the disease. From Sierra Leone, it spread through large parts of Africa. From Brest, it spread through Europe, and from Boston through America. And this new virulent form also then quickly invaded India, much of Brazil, where it devastated particularly Rio de Janeiro, and other parts of the world. As I mentioned, a similar outbreak seems to have hit sailors and soldiers who were stationed in Boston and spread very fast. Within a matter of two weeks, 2,000 U.S. military officers around the East Coast were sick and debilitated. Nonetheless, because the disease spread so fast, authorities did not really even have time to realize what was happening and to see that this was not simply another uh, flu epidemic, but something more dangerous and faster acting than they had seen before. And hence, public events like church services, parades, uh, festivals were not stopped and shut down in the way they had been in the spring. And in fact, Boston, the epicenter of this second outbreak in the United States, had a win the war parade on September 3rd, basically right at the height of the pandemic. It was so quick moving that people couldn't even take stock and know what to do. This second outbreak was much more harmful. You know, where, whereas it was possible to look at the spring pandemic as simply a bad flu season, if you didn't know better, the fall outbreak was something quite different. It was more virulent, more lethal, and caused far more deaths. And these deaths happened differently. They were even more concentrated among people in their prime, in their 20s and 30s. It seems by and large to have hit men very hard, a bit more frequently than women. And there were more infections and more deaths for some reason among men than women. Again, we don't know why. However, it hit pregnant women 
of all women, pregnant women were the most vulnerable to falling ill and dying. Again, who knows why? It also hit especially fast. It seems that there was some gestation period from the disease. We really don't have enough data to know how long. But a person could go from apparently ostensibly healthy and normal to prostrate and severely ill within less than two hours. And they could quickly develop fevers of 101 to 105 degrees. So it could really strike you down totally unprepared and in a place and time where you were not ready to seek treatment. This new flu really caught people's attention and became a recognized phenomenon in a way the spring outbreak was not. And it came to be called Spanish flu. That was the name that attached to it. Why was it called Spanish flu? Well, the first reason why it got this name is firstly just because human beings have an obsessive habit of associating diseases with places, even when, as in this case, there doesn't seem to be any particular rhyme or reason to where and when the virus broke out. And it had no real connection to Spain. But people have always done things like referred to syphilis as the Castilian itch. You know, people want to imagine that when something attacks their bodies and feels like it's contaminating them, they want to think it's something foreign, something not natural to their own world and environment, something that foreign people and foreign things must have brought into their otherwise safe world, you know, and there's often fear of foreigners and migrants somehow bringing disease, even though that's not often how it actually happens. And most pandemics over the last several centuries have actually been pathogens that jumped from animals to humans. And it's very likely, as I'll talk about later, that that's where Spanish flu came from, from other species in the animal kingdom. But for whatever reason, people's brains work a certain way, and they think that foreign people are the danger that will infect them. And they label these diseases according to the faraway places that they think produced them. And in this case, the blame went on Spain very, very unfairly. Why Spain? Well, as I said before, information and especially the press were tightly monitored and censored during the First World War. And countries did not want their opponents to know what their strengths and weaknesses were. They didn't want, for instance, Austria to know if half of Italy's troops were in sickbed. But Spain happened to be neutral. It was not on either side of this particular war, and so they didn't have that hang-up. And the Spanish government was struck and overwhelmed by this disease pandemic. They didn't know what to do. It was largely left to towns and cities to decide how much to close down public events, how much to quarantine people, whether to close borders. Spain actually closed its border with Portugal and tried to shunt blame for the outbreak onto Portugal, even though it hadn't started there either. But they didn't have such a hang-up about sharing information. And the Spanish government did print reports describing this new disease, the fact that it had more severe symptoms, the fact that it was highly contagious, the particular groups of people that it seemed to affect the most. 
and they disseminated advice about how best to treat it and try to contain it. Whether or not that advice was very good, they were at least willing to share it openly. So when people spoke about the flu, they had the most information about it from Spain. And so they thought of it as a Spanish disease that somehow was getting across the border into France or Britain or Italy or wherever. And this name stuck partly because censorship continued about the nature and scale of the pandemic, even as people saw that it was a massive disaster. And even as alarm did rise about the disease, still information continued to be censored. And in an interesting incident, the Italian newspaper Corriere della Sera, which was sort of the most prestigious press organ in Italy, did start to try to gather and canvas information about the disease from around the country and publish death totals which they considered to be an important matter of public concern, and people were interested. And the government was afraid not only of sharing this information abroad, but they also were afraid that it would cause panic if people had these data. And so eventually, after a few weeks, the government stopped them and prohibited them from publishing any more of these death totals. So in what way was this second autumn wave of the Spanish flu more severe? What were the contours and symptoms of this disease now? Well, for a large portion of people, it basically was similar to what had been seen before in the spring. You know, severe flu with congestion, fever, fatigue, as well as some difficulty breathing and fluid on the lung. And impairment of senses, as I said before, loss of taste and smell and diminished color vision. But when the fever lasted for some time and the illness persisted, it seems it would then often pass into another stage. And the first sign of this further stage of illness that doctors and nurses noted was a discoloration in the face, what they came to give this very technical classicizing name, heliotrope cyanosis, which is really just a very, you know, formalistic sounding way of saying bluish purple discoloration. And patches of this dark and unnatural looking color would appear on the cheeks and under the eyes of sufferers. And once it did, it would signal a more dangerous progression of the disease. The patches of color would slowly spread like a rash across the face and then often would be accompanied at the same time by the appearance of bluish and purple discoloration in the hands and feet, which could even darken to black and slowly spread up the arms and legs towards the torso. The patient then could experience sudden profuse bleeding, especially from the nose and sometimes the mouth, as well as coughing up blood, suggesting that similar bleeding could start in the lungs as well. Somewhere in this process, the patient would also experience delirium, paranoia, and hallucinations. 
Some people, if they had the strength, would actually hurt themselves or jump off heights at this point, possibly as a result of paranoia or hallucination. And they would develop severe pneumonia with various fluids saturating the lungs. And once this pneumonia developed, it seems that it was about 60 to 70% fatal. So if you reached this point of the disease, there was a greater chance than not that, that you would die from it. Doctors and nurses, as they saw these effects, they began to speculate about what was happening and why. This seemed to be far beyond the normal course of influenza. Something else was happening, and there was debate over whether this was simply a further development or intensification of the flu, or if there was some other disease that was now breaking out that simply was mimicking the flu, but was something different, particularly pneumonic plague which was still known to occasionally break out in some parts of the world, even in the early 1900s, plague that affected the lungs and then could cause pneumonia and coughing that could cause the bacillus bacteria to then go airborne. And so there was increasing confusion and debate over whether this was in fact influenza at all and whether it was some sort of bacterial disease. And... Finally, many patients would die, and when they were dissected, some, some doctors were able to dissect cadavers. They would find blood and fluid saturating the lungs, and when they took cultures of these fluids, they would find bacillus bacteria, which is the general type of bacteria that causes plague, both bubonic and pneumonic plague. So in many people's minds, this confirmed that what they were seeing was not really properly speaking, flu, but was plague. But some scientists also pointed out that while bacillus was sometimes found in these lungs, in some cases it was not, which suggests that, in fact, bacillus was not the cause of this severe respiratory illness, but rather it was an effect. It was an opportunistic infection that could make its way into the lungs of people once they were already suffering from this very severe flu. So the question of why, why did this second outbreak occur and why was it so much more severe and horrific and, and lethal than what had been seen in the spring? All of this was unclear at the time and to some degree is still mysterious even today, although I'll talk about later the explanations that some scientists have come up with. So this really terrifying and devastating wave of flu in the fall of 1918, this is what caused a number of the deaths I mentioned earlier, such as Guillaume Apollinaire. He died and was found along with his deceased wife in their apartment with blackened faces and hands and feet. And it struck hard and quickly, but it already began abating in November 1918, as this sort of reservoir of most vulnerable people, men and women in their 20s and 30s, soldiers on the front, pregnant women, it started to to diminish as it lost victims, really. 
And already by December 1918, the number of cases was dropping dramatically, and it seemed as if possibly the, the pandemic was passing. But then already by the last week of December, by New Year's Eve, some doctors and nurses were warning that it seemed to be coming back. And in January 1919, a third wave broke out. And this third wave, in terms of severity, it was in between the previous two. It was a bit more harmful and dangerous and caused more deaths than the spring wave of 1918. But it was not as devastating and horrific as the fall 1918 wave. And this wave sort of crept back up and began to, you could say, metaphorically seek out and attack those remaining pockets of survivors who had not already been exposed. So people in rural areas, small remote farms and villages, various islands around the world, and it attacked young children who had not already been exposed before, including infants. It hit certain areas, especially significantly Australia and Patagonia in South America that had previously been spared, that were more remote. And it sort of continued to percolate and slowly diminish little by little, month by month through 1919 and into the early weeks of 1920 which is when it happens to have claimed the young Samuel Frank in New York City before apparently it finally died out. And like many crowd diseases, it petered away and was no longer seen after it could not find any more remaining reserves of vulnerable people to infect. And even after this wave had passed, certain significant parts of the world were completely spared. American Samoa, which were places that recognized that this flu was fast moving and that it was being moved by ships. These islands, such as American Samoa, sealed off their ports and enforced a strict quarantine of any vessels that wished to even make contact with the land. And in this way, they successfully prevented Spanish flu from ever making a landing in their territory until after it had apparently gone extinct in 1920. So what did people do? How did people react to this enormous surge or three surges in cases of the flu? Well, there were many strategies that people could use that had been known from long before, from previous epidemics, including previous flu epidemics, which had broken out many times through the years, including a, a fairly recent large pandemic in the 1890s, which was called Russian flu, again, in, in accord with this custom of, of blaming epidemics on countries. So there were many things that people already knew to do. Close down public venues, close the theaters, close stadiums, close fairgrounds, tell people to stay home, the phrase social distancing was used. Quarantine those who clearly are ill. In the practice of quarantine, you might remember, was invented back in the 1300s in Venice. Quarantena is simply the Venetian word for 40. And 
It comes from when the Republic of Venice, during times of danger from the bubonic plague, they would force any new foreign ships to wait in the lagoon or land their crew on an island and isolate themselves for 40 days and only if they had no symptoms then allow them to enter the city. So these were familiar sorts of tactics for containing pathogens that were applied in 1918 and 1919 and probably had a significant effect. They were able to keep down the spread of the disease and diminish the number of cases, for instance, in New York City. In some cases, some unusual decisions were made that at first glance might seem unwise, but that actually seemed to have helped at the time. For instance, in New York City, the health commissioners decided not to close down the schools. And why is that? Well, for one thing, they noticed that children were not as hit as hard and did not suffer as much harm or death from the Spanish flu as they did from other previous flu outbreaks. They were not actually the most vulnerable population. The main problem that children might pose is if they were circulating out in society, going into homes, playing in the street, and passing the pathogen on to other people. And so they adjudged that, in fact, it was safer to have schools in session, to have the children in the schools being monitored, and to some degree protected by the teachers and nurses in those schools, if they showed symptoms, they could then be quickly isolated and treated rather than passing the virus on to the population at large. And they knew that these children could be used as effective transmitters of information and they could be taught about hygiene, safety, what to do, how to deal with people who are ill. And they could bring that information to their families, their neighborhoods, their communities. And this is probably one of the reasons why New York City actually suffered less devastating of an outbreak than did, say, Boston, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and many other cities around the world. So this is an instance where people had to really adjust, quickly observe and figure out and adjust strategies for containing disease based on the particular behavior of this pathogen. Now on the individual level, if you got sick with this flu, you were in trouble, especially the most severe form that appeared in the autumn of 1918. There was not a whole lot that could be done for you at this time. The main thing was to rest and stay hydrated. And this is overwhelmingly what nurses and doctors did. They tended to people by giving them nourishment, keeping them in bed, and keeping them hydrated. When it became clear how dangerous and how severe this particular disease was, doctors adopted a strategy euphemistically called polypharmacy, which basically means throwing the entire medicine cabinet at them and trying out anything, giving purgatives, sedatives, fever reducers, anything that seemed like it might have some chance of turning around their condition. At this time, there were no antibiotics 
the medical profession was aware that many illnesses and infections were caused by bacteria, and they had observed bacteria in cultures, in microscope uh, slides, but they didn't have any medicine that could effectively stop them once they had infected the body. So there were no antibiotics. There, of course, were no antivirals or anything like that. There was not even a clear concept of viruses or a definite understanding that such a thing existed. Viruses are much smaller than bacteria. They could not be seen under the microscopes of that time. And when the medical profession spoke about viruses, they didn't know what they were or how they operated. And they, the word virus originally just means sort of poison or venom. And there was just a vague notion that there was something even finer or smaller than bacteria out there. And they didn't know if that was what caused influenza. There was debate over whether there was such a thing as an influenza virus or whether it was caused by bad air, miasma, like the old medieval theories held. It's not clear where the word influenza comes from, but it might spring from the notion of the influence of bad stars, you know, a sort of astrological medicine. So there was basically no understanding of viral diseases like influenza and no notion of what to do to stop them. Some medicines that were administered to a great degree were aspirin. It can affect fever and pain. It seemed like a fair enough thing to do. But actually, aspirin is one treatment that probably did more harm than good because when too much aspirin is administered quickly, it can cause fluid in the lungs. And so it may have actually caused or at least exacerbated many of these pneumonia symptoms. So that's one that probably backfired and did more harm than good. Another that probably had no effect one way or another was quinine. Quinine was a widely available drug, and it was known to help a great deal with malaria, another disease that causes fever, headache, chills, and so on, you know, some similarities to influenza. So quinine was administered in large amounts and probably just did nothing. You know, there's really no relation between the protist that causes malaria and the influenza virus, or bacillus bacteria either, for that matter. And I do have to note, again, although I don't want to get bogged down in current events, it is interesting that there's been a sort of recent furor over the notion that hydroxychloroquine might be a treatment for COVID-19, considering that hydroxychloroquine is simply a derivative form of quinine. <laughs> so again, the same idea, you know, is repeating itself over again. Another treatment that was tried by many professionals was bleeding. It seems some observed that when the severe phase of the Spanish flu came on and there was discoloration and delirium, that in many cases when profuse nosebleeds began, that signaled a turn for the better. You know, again, we have no idea what the causal relation is here. This is a complete mystery. But if we credit these doctors and nurses, from their experience, it seems that when the nosebleed started, the patient would start to recover. And it was considered even a good sign. 
So some doctors and nurses began administering bloodletting, hoping that that was what would relieve some sort of pressure and allow recovery to begin. In general, you know, medical science today would say bleeding is never a good idea. You need your blood, you know, unless there's some sort of, you know, swelling or abscess and you want to relieve pressure on a particular point in the body. It's not something you want to do. Is it possible that by some weird twist, actually bleeding did help when it comes to this form of Spanish flu? Don't know. How did people interpret and make sense of this disease? Again, as I said, at this time, the medical professionals did have germ theory. They were aware that tiny microscopic organisms could invade the body and cause cause illness. But they really only understood bacteria in a direct way. And so many sort of engaged in wishful thinking and argued that this disease was bacterial, and hence they simply needed to treat it the way you would treat plague, when in fact we know now it was most certainly the root cause was a virus. Immunization had been discovered by this time and was being used for viral diseases like smallpox, and it could be very effective, vaccination and other techniques of immunization. But there was no known vaccine for for influenza. The influenza virus or family of viruses is very complex and various and fast changing. And so no one had been able to pin down how to vaccinate against something like like influenza. And there were attempts, it seems, there are reports of people coming up with some sort of serum and going around and injecting people with it, (laughs) maybe mimicking smallpox immunization. But we don't know if maybe they knew something that we don't or that has been forgotten, or if it was just a desperate sort of pantomime of immunization that had no effect. So more or less, if you were infected with Spanish flu at this time, there was not much that formal medicine was likely to do for you. And in fact... You, you were just as well off staying at home and hoping that a friend, a neighbor, a family member would keep you fed and hydrated because there was not much else that was going to help you. And in fact, the actual best strategies that people could follow when they were caught up in this pandemic, if they were not yet infected, the best strategies were simply to get a stockpile of some food and water go home or to some safe spot, close yourself off, and have contact with no one for as long as possible, and not answer the door for anybody, including, as the author Laura Spinney points out in her book Pale Rider, you were best off not answering the door for anybody, including a doctor, (laughs) because the main effect of that was that that doctor might pass you the virus. So total isolation was really the best thing, most rational thing to do uh, to protect yourself. And yet there are many instances we can see all the time, all around the world during the pandemic, where people did somehow help others. They made contact with neighbors, friends, loved ones, brought food, sometimes came up with strategies of leaving food at a sort of neutral midpoint so that others then could later pick it up without having direct contact. And these sorts of activities were really irrational. If you're, if you're thinking 
in the sort of modern mode of, you know, enlightened self-interest and self-preservation, then this was an irrational thing to do. You were simply risking spreading the virus, particularly to yourself. And yet people still did it. And this is an illustration of a very common pattern that when disasters strike, people tend to be irrational, not so much in the sense of panic or fleeing or harming others. They tend to be irrational in the other direction of being even more generous and selfless and providing for others even more than necessary. And in a lot of ways, there are activities that we can see people engaging in that were clearly mistakes and probably made the outbreak worse, but that were done with very good intentions. People gathering together to offer prayers, go to masses, perform propitiatory rituals to try to appease God or the gods or spirits. These are things that people did not because they were reckless, but because they thought it was the best thing they could do to try to contain the outbreak and help themselves and others. And there's an interesting instance that, again, Laura Spinney mentions in her book, where Jewish communities, such as in Odessa, performed a folk ritual called a Schwarze Chasana, or Black Wedding, where they would get two sort of impoverished or marginalized members of the Jewish community together, bring them to the cemetery, which of course is ordinarily a place of mourning, dress them in black, and then perform a wedding and hold a party and a celebration. And this was some sort of propitiatory ritual, possibly aimed at gaining the favor or protection of the dead to help then stop the outbreak of death. And of course, medical experts could have told these people, this is a bad idea, you're just going to pass the virus. But nonetheless, the people who participated probably largely felt that they were putting themselves at risk for the sake of the wider community to try to save and protect those who were vulnerable. So this is an instance we can see where ordinary people on the ground made mistakes and misjudgments based on faulty or incomplete information. And they were not the only ones. Very often authorities made important errors based either on misunderstanding of the disease or on misunderstanding of the public psyche. Very commonly authorities expected and anticipated widespread panic and sort of cutthroat, selfish action leading even to, to chaos or violence. And this is one of the reasons why authorities, such as the ones I mentioned in Italy, would often suppress information for fear of feeding into panic, when in fact the opposite was often true. People more often were not afraid enough and they needed to get full information in order to understand the gravity of the situation and how seriously to take it. So people really needed this information that wasn't getting to them. And as I said, when, when the Italian government suppressed the data being reported by Corriere della Sera, it only heightened the fear that people felt because they thought that something 
was threatening them that now the government didn't want them to know. Authorities often also fear for, fear and plan for the expectation that important life-saving personnel like doctors and nurses are going to abandon and shirk their duties in order to protect themselves. When in fact, all information shows that the opposite happens. When a disaster like a pandemic strikes, doctors and nurses tend to take this as their opportunity to put their abilities to their greatest use and they feel the greatest sense of duty of any moment in their lives. And there's an amazing account from the poet William Carlos Williams, who actually was a physician in New Jersey. And he was serving his community in Rutherford, New Jersey, when the Spanish flu hit. And he described doctors running around their towns and neighborhoods doing up to 60 calls a day, working themselves into delirious exhaustion, often infecting themselves with the illness, And he made reference to one young doctor in his 20s in his region who, not surprisingly, was infected and died. And he makes no mention anywhere, just as no source that you can find practically anywhere in the world describes a medical professional uh, leaving their duties, taking shelter, quarantining themselves. So this is a, a really remarkable misjudgment again, by authorities, of also of civilians who tended, by and large, to take the disease fairly seriously if they were informed about what was going on and go out of their way to keep themselves and others safe and to help feed and nurse those in need. Again, as I said before, back in March, in disasters, people tend to become better, not worse. Another big mistake authorities made was timidity in suppressing public events and gatherings. You know, a large part of why so many outbreaks still continued to happen from gatherings like parades and celebrations was because the authorities shied away from closing them down and blocking them. And there's wide, there was widespread expression of fear among government officials and even military officers, that they shouldn't, they couldn't close down train lines or church services or bullfights in Spain, that it would just be impossible. It would be too much of a disruption. People would resist. People would be upset. It would cause panic. And there's a a pattern of reluctance to sort of interfere with or disrupt the ordinary course of life. And this not only allows passing of the pathogen, obviously, it also sends a very bad signal. It sends signals to the public that they should act normally and pursue normalcy rather than switch into this emergency mindset where they have to be vigilant and where they are called upon to do their best to help. Now, as for actual selfish behavior and you could say sort of harmful antisocial behavior that did happen sometimes in this pandemic. It was similar to what happens in many disasters. It was not people robbing each other. It was not pillaging and raiding. It was not murder. 
It was not abandonment of duty. Rather, it was price gouging. (laughs) Disasters present an opportunity to jack up the prices of basic goods that might otherwise be cheap. You know, food, medicine, water, shelter. And there were instances of that during the Spanish flu that sometimes uh, authorities had to prohibit or, or contain. So all of these methods and responses to the pandemic had varying effects. And there were some fairly traditional, normal methods, social distancing, quarantine, that did help and probably managed to save millions of lives. And life little by little went back to normal over the course of 1919 and 1920, such such that by the end of 1920, people wanted... (laughs) A return to normalcy. And that, not surprisingly, was the campaign slogan of the winning candidate, Warren Harding, in the U.S. presidential election of 1920. So we have to ask then, what was the impact? Did things actually change beyond those individual lives lost that were so widely and randomly distributed all throughout the global population? Did things change? Did institutions change? Government, thought, philosophy, behavior? 